0: everyone and it's great to be back with you for another Motorsport Magazine podcast and it's especially exciting today because we're in the brand new headquarters of Motorsport Magazine in Hampstead in North London and I must say it's very smart, lots of fresh white paint, glass, steel, it's fantastic and uh, what's even better is that we have Robert Reed with us today. Welcome Robert. Thank you. Robert's come all the way down from Scotland for our special uh, Hall of Fame Rally podcast and who better to have than Robert Reid who achieved so much success with Richard Burns and of course and uh, like all of you I'm a huge Richard Burns fan so it's a bit of a privilege having him in the next seat. <laughs> he's, in the le- he's to the left of me not to the right of me there so anyway um, welcome Robert. Before we uh, get going, I must say uh, that uh, we'd like to thank Tina Watches for their help with this podcast. Um, They've uh, made this possible for us, so thank you very much, Tina Watches. And also, uh, because uh, we're coming to this time of year, I should just remind you before, before we get going that you can still buy tickets for the 2015 Wales Rally GB, which of course is from the 12th to the 15th of November, so not long now. And if you want to get these tickets, you go to WalesRallyGB.com. WalesRallyGB.com. I've been a few times myself. It's fantastic. Good. Um, We're also joined today by Anthony Peacock, who, of course, is a well known and very long serving rally writer and reporter, and in fact, a contributor to Motorsport magazine on many occasions in past years. So, welcome to you, Anthony. Thank you. Good. Okay. Um, it all began in 1984, Robert, I think. Is that about right? And how, So it, it, am I right, and how did it start?
1: Well, that seems an awful long time ago, but I'm, I'm sure it probably was. I, I was... I, well, the start actually uh, uh, predates that in terms of my family's farming in Perthshire, <laughs> in Scotland, and uh, we have several farms kind of dotted about, and when I was probably, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old Uh, My father and I Were driving between farms And We saw some rally cars And I was like Can we go and watch Dad Can we go and watch So we went and watched And it was just sort of End of Mark 1 Beginning Mark 2 Escort Era And uh, Our Our family farm Is Between Dunkelb and Blairgowrie Just north of Perth And the closest stage to there Is a stage Called Craig Vinion, Which is a, a Famous Scottish rally stage And Um we walked in there and uh, we we watched some cars and and after that I was hooked and um, just like that yeah well well shortly after that I because because I'm first generation motorsport in my family so there's no history nobody kind of knows where it came from and uh, my my bedroom at home was getting redecorated so I was given the option of choosing wallpaper and I chose rally car wallpaper <laughs> and said and said I wanted to be world rally champion you know, at the, at the age of 10 or 11 years old. And you did it. And I did it. So <laughs> I, I don't know whether that's just kind of setting goals or, or, or what it is. But uh, yeah, that's that's where the interest it's came from. It's interesting
0: because I had British racing green racing car curtains. At the, same, <laughs> at the same stage of my life. Oh, there you go. There must and be something in I it. I too wanted to be a world champion, but I think so we all know the answer to it.
1: Maybe, meb- maybe we could use these sorts of things as a vetting process, <laughs> whether drivers are going to make it or not.
2: Which relic car
1: was it on your walls? Robert? It was Mark II Escorts, of course. I
3: was, are you the only I was, I was
0: waiting for Simon to get started on I was, Mark II Escorts.
3: I wasn't, I was actually going to say, are you the only world champion who's ever been inspired by a roll of wallpaper? Possibly. It's not something.
1: Well. It's not something I tell many people, but I suppose I'm telling a lot of people today. Yes. R- yes,
0: you R- are. Yes. Um, I, I can. Un- I can really understand wanting to be a rally driver and wanting to be the best. What I don't understand is why. Do, why would. Did, why a co-driver? I mean, to me, it just seems like a terrifying experience.
1: Yeah. I don't. Again, I don't really know where that came from. But if we fast forward a, a few years from the from the wallpaper. Um, when I got a driving license, started to drive, I went and joined the local car club as, as you do at the time. And, you know, I mean, in these days you were 17 years old or 18 years old, 17, when you started to get interested and involved because there wasn't so many routes in at a younger age. So I went and joined the car club and started doing auto tests and like navigation rallies and all the kind of club activity. And uh, then eventually got to the point of putting a roll cage in the car and doing a stage event. And quickly realised that actually some of the navigating and co-driving I'd done on road events previous, I was more successful at than I was the driving. I was quite fast to the first corner as a driver. (laughs) And, And actually the first stage event I drove on was I think the second stage event Colin drove on and um, he fairly convincingly beat me.
0: That Colin McRae, obviously. Yes,
1: and and at that point I kind of thought, well, maybe this isn't quite <laughs> going to work out the way I thought.
0: Yeah, but then you beat him in years to come though, didn't you? That's well, that's cra- right. And,
1: and actually I ended up doing doing a rally with him, doing the um, right. a, a rally a few years later with, with Colin. But um, yeah, and then I... I was getting a bit of a reputation, good I hope, in terms of being a, a co-driver, being a navigator mostly on, on road events, yeah. wanted to wanted to co-drive in the, in the forests. In those days we called them proper rallies as opposed to road rallies. so um, yeah, so it started um, co-driving in the forest and then again just Scottish championship and worked my way up.
0: You should, I mean, I always think that you guys should be called
1: navigators
0: because uh, co driver suggests that t- sometimes you drive, but actually the only little bit of driving you do is sometimes between the stages, isn't it? Am I right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's nothing to stop, well, on an international rally, there's nothing to stop a co driver driving on a stage. Ah. Um, I mean, I think the FI would call it douzième pilote. Ah oui. Uh, yeah, that's about the extent of my French.
0: That means the second pilot. You yes, at, exactly.
1: You? So, right. so um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, called or or collectively known as the drivers, as it yeah. were. Um, and I think that, I mean, a navigator role perhaps is one that was there earlier on in the sport that isn't, is certainly isn't there today. No. But, um, you know, when I was coming up through the ranks, yeah, I mean, you still had Ordnance Survey maps in the rally car, you know, you still had to cut and run and find your way around traffic jams and all the rest, whereas whereas nowadays it's it's road book and that's the only thing.
0: Tell me, Robert, um, what kind of guy wants to do this job? Because, I mean, talk about trust. I mean, this must be almost the most beautiful example of one person trusting another.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually two people trusting each other, rather than a one-way relationship. Because if I said turn left, then Richard would, and uh, you know, if it was over a cliff, then not so good. But um, certainly, you know, the, the trust is there both ways. And I, I think, I mean, that's epitomised by one of the one of the mistakes I made kind of early on in my professional career, where I turned two pages of pace notes at the same time first couple of calls worked out um, the third or fourth call said it was a flat out you know six gear right hand corner and actually it was a fourth gear right hand corner and we uh, ended up in the middle of a Catalonian forest on on tarmac tires uh, on in on in, in on on the rally there so uh you know Richard and talking about it afterwards you know he was saying well it didn't look quite right but you Told me what it was, and I'd no cause to doubt that, so that's what I did.
0: I think it's fascinating. Uh-
1: so, no, I was just uh, with the co driver and driver sort of relationship, you obviously build that up over years and years. But wh- how do you know something's going to work? Is it because you get on with them out of the car, or is it because you have a similar, or do you have you sort of balance it out in terms of character traits, or do, wh- what is it that sort of makes that secret recipe? Again, I'm not sure you can you can accurately, you know, predict. I mean, when I first met Richard, I was competing against him. I was competing with a, a driver called Steve Egelson. Richard was competing with a, a, another co-driver, obviously, on what was the Audi Sport Rally, last round of the British Championship. And it came, there was a, a national section to the Persia Challenge that year and an international section. And this was the event. The two the two sections came together, and Steve. It was the only event I did with him that year. But he was one of the front-running international series competitors, and this young redhead from the home counties <laughs> came along and and beat everybody. <laughs> and we got talking afterwards, and I think the thing that immediately clicked. Richard had before I co drove for him. He'd had something like sixteen or seventeen different co drivers. So he struggled to get somebody who was serious, somebody who was dedicated, somebody who was committed to doing the job. Uh, And then after I started co-driving with him, he did one event with a a different co-driver. A guy called Chris Wood did one event with him because Des Adele was loaning Richard a a factory, Peugeot, and part of the deal was that um, he would take the co-driver that Des wanted. But apart from that uh you know when i stepped in the car it was only chris on that one event that I ever co drove with richard
3: is it <clears throat> is it absolutely essential in your opinion that driver and co-driver Strike navigator get on as well out of the car as they do in the car or are you aware of instances where the two guys have got up famously on a professional level as, as a working crew but actually hated each other outside the car
1: yeah i'm sure i'm sure there are examples of that um certainly from our point of view the relationship developed so to begin with we didn't know each other we became good friends uh we probably got to the point of almost hating each other at one point i when we started at prodrive i moved down and and lived just outside oxford and um we had the same social circles you know you you knew if he went to the if richard went to the shops uh, you know we knew everything about each other which meant that when you came together on a rally you'd nothing to talk about I moved back to Scotland because it was the right thing to do at that point for me personally as well as for for the relationship and I think at that point this this um deep mutual respect and trust is the next stage of the relationship that starts to develop at that point
0: it's fascinating I mean um you must be very proud, actually, to have been a part of an exceptional. That, that's an. It was an exceptional pairing, wasn't it? I mean, as far back as '93, you won the British Rally Championship. It's, it obviously clicked from very, very early on, and it and it lasted. I mean, sadly, not long enough, but it lasted an amazingly long time. Fantastically consistent success, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when when we first started. So. Uh, I met Richard when, would that be September, October time, Audi Sport Rally always was. He was committed as his prize drive to doing Rally GB with uh, with a different co-driver. And we just kind of talked through that period. And he wanted me to co-drive with him the next year. And the first round of the um, Persia Championship the next year was the Dean Rally. So he said, do the Dean I was like, I'm not sure. And... I had been co-driving with Robbie Head. There was a few other people, you know, that were were wanting me to do stuff and eventually persuaded me to do it. And I said, okay, I'll do one event. I'll commit to one event and we'll see how it goes. So we got to the end of the first stage, which was very snowy. And he said, what do you think then? I was like, hmm, not sure. The next stage, we caught and passed the first car that we caught and passed within three miles we caught the second one within about another two or three miles and we got to the end of the stage and he said, was that better? Like, yeah, it wasn't bad. <laughs> and, um, you know, you could certainly see at that point, I think, you know, I'm sure there are other people who could have achieved similar things with Richard. I'm not saying I was the only person who could have, but, um, he certainly needed somebody perhaps with a little bit more experience at that time that I had yeah. in That's order just yeah. to, yeah. um, to push him on. And, you know, interestingly, in the, um, so probably September, October time the, in 1990s, so I started with Richard beginning in 91. So in the September, late September, early October, I did the Hackle rally in Scotland with Colin McRae. And then six weeks later, I did the Galloway Hills rally with Alistair, with his brother. And then sort of eight weeks later, I did the Y Dean with Richard. So in that three month period, I'd sat with, you know, arguably the three best young up and coming drivers, you know, who were probably below the radar at that point, but who were certainly coming onto the radar.
2: How did the young Richard compare with the young Colin at that time? Were they, you know, were they fundamentally, did they have the same differences as they did later in life in terms of driving style and approach to things or or were uh, were they different?
1: I mean, Colin had done more rallies. So, you know, he was he was uh maturer as a competitor, not necessarily as a person, maybe, but mature as a competitor. Uh and obviously very committed, whereas Richard was was learning. I remember with Colin, so Hackle Rally, my local rally, so uses Craig Vinyon Forest where the, the kind of the spark of, of interest had started. Uh but also uses Drummond Hill, which is quite a feared stage. In, in Scottish rallying, and there's a a road we always call the diagonal road, which goes across the middle of the of of the hill. And we're coming down there, and I'm reading maps in those in those days. So it was all about navigation rather than pace notes. Yeah. And we're coming down the hill, and I'm aware out of the corner of my eye that Colin is slackening his seat belts. <laughs> and it it was pissing with rain. It was. Typical Scottish rally day. And I kind of glanced across, looked up from the map, and I glanced across at him. And he was leaning across to my side of the car. I was a Mark II Escort, which still exists today. It was owned by his Uncle Hugh, Uncle Shug. And um, the spring on the wiper on his side was obviously not at its best. And the wiper was lifting off the screen as we were doing, I don't know, it was probably only 85 or 90 miles an hour. And he was leaning across, looking out my side of the window, which I thought was quite an interesting uh, experience. Was
0: um, was was he too brave?
1: Colin, um, yeah, I suppose you could level that. I mean, I I went on to do quite a bit with Colin when he when he was at Subaru. I did a few tests with him. Um, so for example, first time we went to New Zealand in '94. Uh, Derek Ringer, who was co-driving with Colin at the time. Derek didn't come out until just before the rally. So I went out, did the test with Colin, did the test with Richard. and And then obviously stayed on. And even then, it was interesting. Colin would set the fastest time on a piece of road the second or third time he'd been up it. And he was shaving fence posts and, you know, using every inch of the road. It would take Richard a dozen runs... But Richard would actually do a time that was faster than Collins because it was less raw Mm. and it was more kind of thought out Mm. so different approaches similar end result and then if we fast forward again to sort of well 99 2000 2001 our time at Subaru um 99 2000 we had the most number of fastest times of any driver in the world championship and that's not something that people particularly thought of Richard doing. You know, that was more Colin sets loads of fastest times and wins some rallies and maybe doesn't finish some others. So it was just interesting to see the way that, you know, Richard developed and, you know, became as fast
2: as he, as he was. The thing is, I remember looking at various of your in-cars, and Colin is always very sideways, very spectacular. The thing is with Richard, he always just looked so comfortable driving the Subaru in particular. I mean, the way that he, he really just moved his wrists to, to guide the car along. Um, where did that driving style come from? Because, you know, it's, it's in many ways the polar opposite to what Colin did.
3: No, I was, just gonna, I was just gonna say, I mean, in some ways, sort of like a, a Jensen Button to a Lewis Hamilton, almost. In yeah. Terms of st- one one yeah. very stylish, one very improvisational.
1: Yeah, and I think people often label one is natural and, and one is not so natural. You know, and Colin's always labelled as being a very natural driver. Um, Richard certainly put a lot of effort in. And I mean, I would say that Richard and Tommy Mackinnon probably were two people who changed the sport. Mm. They, they had different driving styles. They drove the car straighter, which allowed engineers to work with them more and actually engineer the car in that direction. Because you know, up until that point, you threw the car about yeah. and you your notes weren't that precise. We had 28 different um, variations of corner angle in our pace notes. I mean, that, it's un- <laughs> unheard of. You know, Colin had six with a plus and a minus. So 18, you could argue. But, um, you know, so the notes were really accurate. Quite difficult to, to read at the right time, but they, they were really accurate. Which meant that you could drive the car straighter. It was no longer as risky to, you know, lean on the front of an understeering car. Whereas if you didn't really know where you were going, you had to have the car moving because that's the way you could react to, you know, a corner tightening or not being quite as you'd as you'd noted it.
0: I, I love the fact that that there, there, there's so much still, isn't there, of the human element in this sport of rallying. I mean, I know it's got more sophisticated. Uh, the, well, the cars have yes, and the and the post notes have too, haven't they? But there's still, isn't there, that 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 human element in there of of anything could go wrong at any moment.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think it's you could you come to the end of a you know maybe whether it's twenty kilometers or fifty kilometers long stage, and when you get to the end of the stage, you see how you've done. So there's no lap delta on your steering wheel. There's no, you know, okay, we had, we had split times being sent to the cars for uh, for a few years, but the FIA have now decided to ban that, which I agree with, because ultimately it should be you choose the pace that you feel you want to go at. You know, that's part
2: of the sport. That's part of the DNA. Yeah. yeah. Did you feel, Robert, any pressure on yourself because you had to deal with such detailed pace notes, so much information? I think it's fair to say that in some ways you were busier than all the other co-drivers and how much did that responsibility weigh on you, the fact that you had to get all this information out in a very short space of time. And as such, you had a sort of much harder ride of it, I suppose, than many of your colleagues.
1: Yeah, maybe, I mean, it's a constantly moving feast. So you you go through a process and, you know, when I'm working with young drivers nowadays, I I often you know, they say to me, well, I wanna get my pace notes absolutely perfect. And then they're gonna be like that for the whole career. Sorry to burst that bubble, but they're, they're not because you will find that you've got too much information, so you take a load out, which then means you've got the co-driver's got more time to say things, so you add more detail in, so you get rid of the irrelevant stuff or the stuff that is irrelevant in, in that moment, and put stuff in that um, you know actually works and make you, makes you go faster, and and that the the problem with that is that. Every time you change something in your pace notes, it takes a year to change because you've got to change every event. So you've got notes from the previous years and you've got to change it all. And you'd come to the end of a big change and you'd have two or three rallies where nothing changed and it was like heaven. You know, not much work to do in the evenings on the recce, everything worked. And then and then you'd get the dreaded start of the next recce, Richard would go... I've been thinking, <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, here we go again—another year of completely changing the whole, the whole noting system." But that's that's how it evolves, and you know, I think people that that stand still quickly get over, overtaken, regardless of the of the context.
0: I, I must say, I wish we had more time to go into it in detail because it is it, that that the science of it is so I- interesting to me. Um, I mean, did you did you and richard have any kind of special secret words or phrases that you used in certain situations that where you both knew exactly what that meant or was it always just strict discipline paste note drive paste note
1: yeah, we, we we probably did have a few, not necessarily in the pace notes and not necessarily I could repeat <laughs> to a, to 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 a big audience. But And not you know, necessarily anything uh, to do with well the No, exactly. mean
0: words give the, us the give us the
1: f- well no, it was um it was that it was that knowingness that, that you develop. Yeah. Especially when you come to, you know, well start of a stage, end of a stage, um when you're connected by intercom and the outside world is a very foreign place. Um, and I mean the one that the one that springs to mind is uh, Rally GB every year. Rally GB was always difficult because there was so much interest, you know, so much media interest. There was so much pressure. Um, we'd always been fast on it, and uh, you know, you get to November in pretty poor conditions and in a forest somewhere in in, in you know any part of the UK. I mean, we've done Rally GB into Scotland. Obviously it's based in Wales now through England. And you'd get to the arrival control at the start of the stage, and you would get the well meaning British Marshal who wanted to take your time card off you. Don't worry, I'll give you the time you want. No, I'm holding on to it. And and you'd get them actually almost half of the half their body inside the car trying to get the time card off you. And uh, and and take it to fill it in, and they were very well meaning. They were they, they were doing it for the right reason, and all I'd hear in the uh, in the intercom was uh, Richard recounting a phrase which I had used a couple of times, which was, "I do this sixteen times a year. You do this once a year. I do know what I'm talking about, so I'll just keep my time card." So after I'd <laughs> used that a couple of times, I would hear this coming back to me as this well-meaning marshal was trying to be trying to be helpful so yeah there was a bit of banter as well in in terms of those sorts of things
0: i think it's great because i think it's like with any sport it's so nice to get in the car and i was in the car during that description it's brilliant it gives gives you especially especially coming up to this year's rally when you know so many people listening to us now are going to be there standing in those dripping (laughs) under those dripping trees or wherever they are great um we must talk about the, what the media built up into this this huge sort of battle between you and Richard and McCrae and Grist. I mean, it it was, you know, front-page news, man. I mean, extraordinary. What was it really like? I mean, they they didn't hate each other, did they?
1: No, not at all. I mean, they actually got on very well. And for me, it was, I mean, I, I knew Colin before I knew Richard. I'd done a rally with Colin before I did a rally yeah, with Richard, yeah. you know. I think there's some rather embarrassing pictures in one of the Colin books of me um, wearing something not particularly fashionable at Colin's 18th birthday party or something like that. So, you know, it was quite an interesting situation to to, to be in. But again, you know, it worked and the the media fueled it and Colin didn't um, defuse it. Mm. (laughs) But, you know, the the story that springs to mind uh, just now was... We were in Argentina, uh, must have been 98. We were at Mitsubishi. We were considering our options for 99. Colin was at at Subaru. He was considering his options. And Colin um, rang Richard up and said, let's go for dinner. The four of us went for dinner and he said, right, I'm thinking of leaving Subaru (laughs) and going to Ford. And Richard's like, well, I've got an offer from Subaru. So I'm thinking of leaving Mitsubishi. And and Colin was like, well, okay, let's coordinate this so it works properly. So you know, they did get on well. I That's mean, interesting,
0: it's fascinating. I mean, did I you mean know they, that, Anthony? I, I didn't
2: know about the dinner. No, no, no. I mean, what 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 I wanted to ask Robert as well was that obviously you know there's been a lot spoken about the rivalry between Richard and Colin, but what about your rivalry with Nicky on a on a professional basis? I got on
1: very well with Nicky now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's always it's always difficult to be fair. Uh I've never been in a team with Nicky. So I mean the rivalry co-driver wise within teams is sometimes an interesting interesting one as well. Uh you know, it was clear that Nicky was fueling um Colin um in, in the whole rivalry, so yeah, it was a bit tense at times.
2: I think I think it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, Robert, that at the time there's probably well, there's definitely more needle between you and Nicky than there was between Richard and Colin.
1: At times, I think it's fair. It's fair to say, yes. You
0: were mentioning just there the the sort of the competition between co-drivers in the same team. Um,
1: what's kind of sharing of information and notes, or anything, does anything go on between the co-drivers? I mean, it, obviously, it depends how much how well they get on. But ultimately, they're your notes. You kind of want to keep them as your notes because you've worked hard for them. But if you're part of a team, is there not? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the detail of the notes, yes. Um, the, the 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 bigger Picture, you know, I mean, we would all, well, for example, in Subaru in the early 90s, Colin, Carlos and ourselves, we would always recce with Carlos and you would always be stopped and speaking to some other drivers and they'd be saying, well, what about that bit in that last stage with the whatever it was? You know, you'd always kind of talk about things. Colin tended to do things on his own, which meant he wasn't necessarily part of those conversations. And you could argue that that means he, he missed out. So yes, there was a bit of, of sharing of of information or sharing of opinion, but when it came to the pace notes, that's your personal bit, as it were. That's how you translate that that broader information into the detail that you need in that split second in the stage.
0: Robert, I think I think um, as you know, it's so it's so sad <laughs> that neither of these guys are with us anymore. But maybe the, to me the best way of looking at it now is to talk about the Richard Burns Foundation, simply because it's the positive side of it, it's the future side of it. Can you can you tell us a bit about what it does? And because it's it, it, it's it's successful, isn't it? I mean, it's it
1: yeah, it it is. And you know, again, it's it was quite some journey when Richard was ill, and I was spending a lot of time with him. One of the questions that he used to rhetorically ask is what happens to other people when they're suffering the same thing that don't have friends who can take time don't have a partner who can you know take time in the way that Zoe did with with Richard in order to help them through this He said you know what happens when people have to work what you know how do they Absolutely. how do they survive and you know he, he said on a couple of occasions he said you know regardless of what the outcome of, of his situation was, he wanted to do something uh, to help people in those sorts of situations, and I often say, you know, if Richard had been alive today, having gone through what he went through, there would still be a Richard Burns Foundation. It would just wouldn't be people like myself or Paul Hembry or Colin McMaster or you know people that are involved that are standing there urging people to support. It would be Richard himself. Uh, so you know, when Richard sadly lost his battle, it was it was something that I felt I had to put effort into. You know, there was a couple of things he wanted me to do. He was part of the FI Institute's um, closed car research group, so safety research group. And he said to me, he said, I want you to take that on and I want you to work. So Sid, was, um, Sid Watkins was yeah. was chairing at the time. He said, I want you to keep that work going. So I'm still involved to this day right. in, in, in that. And he said, "I want to set something up that's going to that's going to help people." Um, from my perspective, it, it's about helping people, of course, but also it's about keeping the name alive. So I put a lot of energy and effort into it in the early days. I've actually now stood down as a, as a trustee, just because I want it to stand on its own two feet, and that emotional energy can't go on forever, and it's got to it's got to live or die basically on its own merits um, so we've got a really good um, really good lady Kate Higton who' who runs it on a day-to-day basis uh, I still do what I can for them and we've got a number of trustees that uh, that are there driving the thing forward
0: what's your again let's be positive um, what's your if, if you get if you get home tonight sit down have a glass of wine what, what's your best? most thrilling, most sort of fantastic memory of that of all that time with him and those you know, all those rallies, all those wins, all the the world championship. What was the best thing?
1: Um, there's lots of them and, you know, obviously winning the championship is one you know, the the clip that's still shown on the television where he turns to me and says, You're the best in the world <laughs> um was was, was amazing. But, you know, there's there's also some other moments, you know, I remember winning in New Zealand, I can't remember what year it was, uh, having a hell of a party in Auckland, getting on an aeroplane, landing in, in Hawaii the day before. So having the party on the Sunday night in Auckland, landing in Hawaii on the Sunday afternoon, and we had a pretty good attempt at having a hell of a party again. <laughs> so, you know, even just those sorts of things, like sharing... Those sorts of moments with some close people that were part of the traveling circus, uh, you know, will always, always stick in my mind. I think the other thing that sticks in my mind was this. Uh, we, were, we were about to get on a British Airways flight one night from London, I presume. Uh, I can't even remember where we were going. And um, Richard said, he said, you know, it's ironic, isn't it? You, you do well, you become successful, you earn a lot of money you fly first class, you stay in five-star hotels, but the chances of getting on an airplane and, and a nice young girl coming and sitting next to you are really slim. So, so we, we walked onto the plane, turned left into the first class cabin. The stewardess came up and said, would sir sort of like a glass of Dom Perignon or Krug. So obviously took the Krug and, uh, and, and this young lady, walks into the first-class cabin that we'd both spotted in the departures area. And I just said to Richard, maybe your, luck's, um, maybe your luck's changing tonight, just as she said, Daddy, will you give me a hand to put this bag up in the locker?
0: <laughs>
2: there, were, there were, of course, some other uh, amusing moments you had too, Robert. I remember there was one time when you had a, an, innovative, an innovative solution to fix, I think it was a radiator leak in Cyprus, wasn't it? um
1: yeah we used all fluids available i think is the the best way to put that
0: hang on hang on where um, are we going here
1: and it wasn't who who was it poured beer in the radiator last <laughs> time but i think i think this was maybe um a show of disgust as well but uh, it didn't work the car uh, didn't make it back to the service but yeah right. you've, got, you've got to try everything
0: you know, I must say it's been a it's been a fantastic half hour. A real pleasure to talk to you. Brilliant. And uh, but we have another half hour to come, but with a slightly different uh, focus because it's our motorsport magazine Hall of Fame, and it's time for all the rally fans. That's all of you out there. Uh, you're you're the you're the big thing here because you're doing the voting. All we're going to do is come up with twelve names. So we've got obviously Robert. Reid is still with us, um, as is Anthony Peacock, and Simon Aaron, and Ed Foster. So between us all, we can for sure come up with 12 names. Um, So let's make a start um, with a a reader's question, just to get us kind of moving into a different area, because we've got quite a few reader's questions, and I think the first one we should take is very definitely from a man called Marino Franchitti. It's a familiar surname, isn't it? Yeah, anyway.
1: I can almost guess what he's going to ask. Well,
0: I'll tell you what he wants to know, shall I? (laughs) Robert, he wants to know, where is my helmet?
1: (laughs) His helmet is in my house. I think what he wants to know is, where is the one that I am giving him?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm not involved in this, so...
1: Yeah, and I've told him where it is. We just need to track it down. No, um, Dario and Marino have been friends of mine for, for a number of years and we've done helmet swaps and, and all sorts of things so uh, the original Subaru uh, World Rally Team helmets are now in short supply and there is one in existence and we both know who's got it and I'm trying to get it back and I'm trying to get Marino to put pressure on the guy to give it back as well so uh, yeah one of these days he'll he'll get the helmet
0: OK, Marina, that's not a completely straight answer, actually.
2: <laughs> it sounds threatening, frankly. I think, I,
1: I, Yeah, I think it needs probably to be resolved over a couple of good nights out somewhere.
0: I think the Franchitis need to get round to the reeds and sort this one out, actually. Anyway, um, a question from James before we... Because Ed Foster is even now preparing our whiteboard so that we can get our 12 rally drivers and co-drivers on board. But anyway, before, while he prepares, James wants to, to ask you, Robert, whether you regret that rallying is no longer viewed as an endurance sport?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the endurance element was something I enjoyed. And perhaps more than the endurance element, element it was the tactical element, which comes with endurance, which was particularly what, for me, was the, yeah. the really interesting Um, aspect I mean I know there's um, there's calls to have longer stages etc now which I think do throw up some interesting interesting results but you know when you've done a 350 kilometer stage in safari and uh, things like that you know done 5 day safari, 4 day rally GBs then the current um, office hours rallying isn't isn't quite what it was. As I say, cause I
3: mean back back in back in the day, people were fixing. I mean, you mentioned the, the various fluids you tried on the car, but I mean, people were using Coca-Cola in clutch cylinders and chewing gum and string and and all sorts to get I mean, that that element of it is just basically gone. You get, you kind of get to park firm and build a new car if necessary, don't you? Pretty yeah, much. and
1: and you know when you when you look, I mean, there used to be a regulation that said there had to be a I think it was a six-hour halt overnight, but the six-hour halt overnight by the time you checked in. Uh, found your hotel, because it was a different hotel from the night before, got into the hotel, um, you know, found your bag, which the doctor had brought or somebody had brought along, got four hours sleep, had to get up again and start. You know, it was was tough going. And when you were in the car, you were servicing, arranged services at the roadside. So we were basically, you know, as a co-driver, you might get out of the car two or three times a day and that was it. And if you had 10 minutes or 15 minutes, that was a long a long time whereas now you know you get 30 minutes in the middle of the day you can actually have lunch luxury yeah
0: yeah okay um a question from paul fernley paul wants to know where were you surprised that stephen price didn't go further because you you co-drove for stephen price didn't you
1: i did yes between um robbie head and, and richard i robbie had uh, got an opportunity with evans holshaw i think it was a member at the time and group n sierra and national championship and um and i was overlooked as as co-driver and one of the reasons it was given was that i didn't have enough pace note experience so i went off and did a year of um irish tarmac championship with Stephen, just to kind of build that uh, build that experience for myself and steve was a he was a quick guy um he did a few rallies after. That was kind of the serious bit, I think, for him. We did British Championship tarmac events and Irish tarmac that year. And he did, did a few more years, but I, d- I don't know what's, what's happened to him now.
0: But you thought he might have gone further?
1: Yeah, he certainly had the potential to yeah. go further than, than, than he did.
0: Okay. Um, well, a couple of questions later on, before the, before the end of our show. But let's get into the Hall of Fame. And uh, Anthony Peacock. The obvious place to start are our rally writer, our rally reporter. Let's have let's have some names, man, to get onto the board for the Wall of Fame. Well, I
2: think as we've been talking about it, we have to say Richard and we have to say Colin, don't we? Those are our first two. Two obvious people. Well, Colin's think.
3: already actually in there. Oh, there, there we go. <laughs> so, okay. So you okay, can't also, be in twice.
0: Just let me remind you that when it, it, it doesn't have to be a rally driver. It could be a team manager, it could be a chief mechanic, it could be a co driver. Somebody who's made a real impact upon rallying.
2: Well, we've got Richard Burns, so I'm going to say Robert Reid.
0: Okay, good one. I think that's good. Yep.
2: Can we just stop now?
0: <laughs> Are you in a hurry?
1: No, well, I think we've got two good oh, you ones think that's there. It, so that's done that. it, yeah. it, it
0: gives him yeah. a 50 50 chance. So, so, it's, it's, so in it's, fact, we, we just do McRae Burns, and Reed, and that's it. That yep.
1: Sounds fair enough to me. <laughs> no. God, the man is so competitive.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, so, on, let's have a couple more names, Anthony.
2: Well, um, I think we have to. I think we can go back in time, but I, I was actually going to go very forward in time and say that we can't be talking about a Rally Hall of Fame without Sebastian Loeb. Mm-hmm. Um.
0: Sure. Okay.
2: But if we're going back in time, my, my, my personal nomination would be. Um, I've always thought Marco Alain was just fantastic. Here, the here. fact yeah, that no, his, absolutely.
3: Um, he, he was basically a, Finn, a, Finn and a an Italian in a Fin's body. Very much, so. pretty, mu- pretty much.
2: Very, very much so. And um, you know, he it goes beyond the fact that he just speaks Italian. He, he even moves his arms like an Italian, and um, and he, he even
1: wears his jumper over his shoulders like an Italian.
2: And it's normally a pastel-coloured shade as well, like pink or baby blue, which is very <laughs> Italian indeed.
1: I Do you know your um, Marco stats? Um, I know a fair
2: number of them. Driver has won the most events and never been world champion. Well, it depends. I mean, he was world mm. champion, but I think only mm. for three four days. Exactly. Um, also, I
1: believe only Sebastian Loeb has
2: won more stages. Absolutely. And the, the incredible thing is, is that record, which was, I think it... Uh, Off the top of my head, it's eight hundred and something, but that record stood until comparatively recently, Um, and it's just phenomenal that you know a record that was established in the eighties stood until the two thousands.
1: Yeah, one of my first memories of um, being at a world championship rally wasn't as competing. Was Portugal in ninety two? We were doing British national championship with uh, pro and a Group NCAR and I was helping uh, John Spiller and Andy Moss with service schedules. Uh, for the world championship round so we're out to portugal and i can remember one of the first stages uh, marco came off the stage and i had to pour 20 liters of fuel into his burbling um brightly colored subaru legacy you know and it was just such a awe-inspiring moment to be so close to something
2: that i dreamt about for so long
0: i think we've all had that feeling in our own different ways when we've yeah.
2: The incredible thing actually about Marku is I remember interviewing him not so long ago and we were talking about his favourite cars and he came out with the sort of predictable answers, the, the Lanch and so forth but he said that his favourite in terms of the easiest car to drive and the one he had the best instant feeling with was actually the Legacy which is strange because that's not, you know, it's not an Elen car it's not something he's massively associated with yet that was the one he came up with as being his, his, his favourite car to drive Still probably one of my
1: favourites if not the favourite, Um, there's one in Richard's collection, the one that we won British Championship with and, you know, every time I see that car, it just makes the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. It's, it's, a, it's amazing.
3: Well, while Robert's firing out all these stats, he's got his iPad or tablet there. Has he actually got it open on Wikipedia? I I'm just curious because it he seems very... Well, just these just are, curious.
0: These are, these are the post notes for the motorsport podcast.
3: Oh, oh all right, Good answer. Um, is it,
1: is, it's actually still in flight-safe mode because I turned it off from the aeroplane. Okay,
0: Simon Aaron, Simon Aaron, let's have some names.
3: One uh, for me, um, obviously, I'm primarily... A a racing person but I I do did go and watch rallies as often as I could and I, I was interested and the guy that caught my imagination I think possibly more than any other with all due respect to the Brits was Henri Toivonen. I just felt he there was a spirit of Gilles Villeneuve about him in some ways he just seemed to be able to do things with cars which others perhaps couldn't um, I a very interesting chat with Hannu Mikkola. um piece appeared in Motorsport a few months ago and we were chatting and he he said to me that he'd, he'd known Henri since he was a little boy and he could have turned his hand to anything, uh, competition-wise, you know, sports cars, single-seaters. He was very, very gifted. But then he ha- had the conversation with Pauli Toiven and Henri's father about what he should do. And he guided him towards rallying because he thought it'd be safer. and Of course, which is supremely ironic in, in view of what happened. But uh, I, I met him uh, when he did a... Formula Libre race at Silverstone in I think 1983 in an Eddie Jordan Formula 3 Rolt before doing the end of season TV s- race at Thruxton. And it's the oddest thing, it was a Peterborough Motor Club or something. Um, and here amongst all these club guys was you know, a world-class rally driver. And he jumped in this Rolt and he, you know, he made it go very, very well. Uh, and he was a lovely bloke.
0: Okay. Uh, and for millions of reasons, I think Henri Toyvanen. Another one, another name for our, we've only got five on the board.
3: Um, several of them have already been mentioned. I think Carlos Sainz um, and Tommy Mackinnon. For me, Tommy Mackinnon. I mean, four straight rally titles. Um, you know, you, you can't argue. That. And, and just Carlos, Carlos Sainz, I think, brought something a little different. I mean, he, um, I don't know if there was a perhaps a step to just slightly more. Prof- I don't know if something an something about the science era. Things began started to become a little bit more professional in terms of physical preparation. You look back to the seventies. And a lot of the guys who are winning world championship rallies, you know, were not athletes, but guys like Science. I mean, you know, certainly Richard and Colin, but uh, and and later on, if you look at now, um, Ogier, Loeb, etc. I mean, they all look like uh, they've got ath- athletic build, which wasn't the case before. But I think uh, Science, I think, was a little bit of a. He was kind of a, around. He might. I mean, maybe I'm getting a bit late, a bit early. I don't know. But um, I always thought that he kind of.
2: Change them change just change the approach slightly also that was that was the impression I had I think you're right, Simon. I mean, I remember talking to Carlos recently and I asked him what he's most proud of throughout his career, and he said he was proud of two things really, and he said the first thing he was proud of was that he was consistently competitive, so he won that he had a lean year, I think in nineteen ninety three but he pretty much won a rally per year from nineteen eighty seven to two thousand and four, which was his last win, in fact, his very last w r c rally was 2005 Acropolis, and he finished with a podium. And not many people can have that consistent level of competition. And the second thing he said he was most proud of was that at the time when he started in the late 80s, it was still very much a sport where you had specialists, asphalt specialists, and snow specialists, and gravel specialists. And Carlos said that you know his his aim from a very early point was to be competitive on every surface, and he probably he probably managed that, or at least sort of managed that more consistently than many others. Um, we say that, of course, but of course Marco Alain, who I mentioned earlier, he was the first Finn to win on asphalt, which was Corsica in 1984. So maybe maybe he beat Carlos to it in that respect, but, but uh, it was a different era. And I think sort of like um, Carlos coming in with the sort of factory teams he did and being so consistently competitive from the very beginning was really quite an achievement. And it's no coincidence that Carlos Sainz Jr. is doing as well as he is in Formula One, because um, the, the work ethic that um, that boys had instilled with him must be quite formidable.
3: Plus, of course, Carlos Senior did the uh, Formula Ford Festival in 1983. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Robert, it well, um, should,
1: be, should be mentioned. Yeah, I think he was also quickest on a stage in Morocco yesterday. He was. In the, and, um, uh,
2: in the cross-country Peugeot. And leads the event, I believe.
0: Robert, let's have some names from you because um, if you don't know, no one does.
1: Well, uh, there's a few of them already been mentioned. Um, but I'm going to start by going back to uh, what kind of spiked my initial interest. So I'm going to say Hanu Mikula. I know Simon had mentioned before, because certainly that Eton-Yale Mark II Escort, you know, really sticks in my mind as being something that mot- motivated and inspired a lot of people. Um, you know, Hanu did British Championship a lot um as, as well as doing world championship when british championship was so was so big and um i actually had the opportunity to spend some time with hanu earlier on this year at the colin mcrae event at knock hill when um audi uk brought the s1 quattro and hanu and arnie hertz did some did some demo laps well, so I'd like to that was that. yeah no that, that that was really special um and there's, they, also, there's also
3: durability with Hanno because he was a works driver with Toyota I think, in the late 60s and he was still a works driver in the early 90s. I mean, he, he yeah. spanned four decades. I mean, there was sustained success. He's also
0: a lovely bloke.
3: Yeah, well, there is that too. <laughs>
1: um, the other name I'm going, to, I'm going to come out with is maybe a slightly left field, but I'm going to throw Andrew Cowan out as a, as a name. You know, Andrew, obviously the boss of Mitsubishi when Richard and I drove there. Um, also a Scottish farmer so you know somebody who I, I know very well. Um, but I think you know what Andrew did in terms of the London to Sydneys uh, Mercedes in rallying and and also then going on to put the deal together to to, to run Mitsubishi in the championship you know without all the effort that Andrew um, and to be for his wife Linda put into it. You know, Tommy wouldn't arguably have had the opportunity he had.
0: I think that's a good name because it's for it's for slightly different reasons as well, which I think because they don't have to be superstars; they just have to have made an an impact on the sport itself. And Andrew Cowan certainly did that.
2: Maybe the fastest man ever to drive a Hillman Imp.
0: <laughs> yes, well, uh, <laughs> or well, a Hillman Hunter.
1: Yeah, and I mean, Andrew, when when there was the the um, just after Colin was killed, there was the McRae Rally, uh, and um, Ari came along in the, the Rothmans car with David Richards and uh, and Andrew did the event in his Hillman Imp. Did he? Yeah, that was amazing see. I remember to that say. car
0: very well. I don't know why, but I do. It was blue and white, wasn't it? Anyway, yeah, I remember. Um,
1: and, and maybe another one to throw on the table. I mean, it's interesting having been teammates with a lot of these people, but I would certainly put Marcus Grunholm on the list. And and the reason I'd put Marcus on the, on the list was because he was... Arguably the most formidable teammate that that we had. I mean, he was okay in Peugeot, which was kind of his team, his car. But he was a really, really difficult guy to beat. If you were beating Marcus, you were you were going well.
0: I think that's eminently a good name. Yes. Okay. Well, we need we need two more guys. So um... can I can I can I go
3: slightly left field as well and go Jean Luc Terrier? I mean, that is left field. Um, but he he would have been he would have been world champion had the world championship existed. Well, I also drove an Alpine A110.
0: Okay, I, I, I'd like Robert Reid to make the decision on this, Ed Foster. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it too left field, or is it no? No, good. no, okay, no, fine. no, not That's at all. Good. good, great,
1: good, fine, good. And and then again, I think you know we can go even more left field. I mean, <laughs> we don't we don't we don't need to just stick to drivers and co-drivers. And I think there's you know there's a couple of um, well co-driver first for me somebody who I think deserves to be on the list is Seppo Hariani, who won a world championship uh in in in, well two world championships in different eras Yeah, so um yeah you know I think I think that and then a couple other names I've got on here um which again slightly different change of direction uh Jean-Claude Vaucard
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
1: Who was engineer, one of the first employees on the Persia 205 T16 project was Jean-Todd. Great car. Um, and also the guy who designed the Citroën uh, WRC um, C4. You're so testing. again, somebody who's spanned a huge um, a huge amount of uh, of time in the sport. And You're still is seen on rallies now. Here, sorry, Jean-Claude Vaucard.
0: Ed is having to write these on our <coughs> motorsport Ed, podcast.
3: Ed, Ed normally it. struggles spelling Formula One drivers' surnames. <laughs> well, ra- rallying, he's got no chance. I'm, I'm, the more fins we can mention the better. I'm
1: incredibly impressed at all the accents and yes. uh, umlauts and and whatever. V a u c a r d. How
2: come you can get Hayam but not Jean-Claude Vercod? Yeah. Yeah. We've
1: got a good. He to Google. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> i that's i was impressed i thought i thought your knowledge was just superior Ed. but um obviously the 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 wonders of modern technology we've
0: got a good list here we 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 need 12 names and we've actually got 14 now i think but i think i mean
3: you you, know you should be on there yeah i mean again another four 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 times times. very 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 consistent perhaps not always the most spectacular guy but just always seem to bring the
2: bring the car home on a very, very regular basis. And of course, the only man to win those championships were three different manufacturers. Ari Vatanen.
3: Robert, thoughts on Ari Vatanen?
1: Yeah, I mean, he w- he won the World Championship with David Richards as a privateer with the David Sutton um, team, which was, you know, a huge feat, 1981. Um, he's still involved in the sport. He's now uh, president of one of the safety commissions at the FIA, so, um, you know, somebody who's still, um, still actively involved.
2: Going back to Juha Kankanen, of course, I'm, I'm told, I'm not sure if this is true or not, maybe someone can help us, that Kankanen is also the Finnish word for hangover.
1: <laughs> Might well be. Ed, 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 can you Google that? Nikki ni- <laughs> Griss tells a great Kankanen story. There's a stage in uh, Finland called Lauka or Leustu, can't remember which one it is, that goes through Kankanen's farm. And they're in the Toyota and they roll on this stage. And Nicky's like trying to compose himself, make sure he's got his notes and work out how they're going to get a car back on its wheels. And uh, and this Finnish guy comes along and starts banging on the roof and kicking the door and shouting and screaming. And Nicky's trying to say, no, just push us back over on our wheels, you know, no need to get aggressive. And they get to the end of the stage. And uh, he says to Juha, to who was that guy that was getting all... Um, all annoyed in the middle of the stage and you goes, it was my brother. Mm. <laughs> so small um, country, eh? Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. I I think just to to add some variety, yeah. I'd I'd also like to throw a couple of more engineer names yep. on the table. So certainly for me, David Lapworth oh, is yes. somebody who, you know, what I've worked very, very closely with. He was instrumental in uh in you know helping rich and i get our initial opportunity at broad drive uh involved in the you know the british championship all the way through asia pacific uh world championship but also you know the first um engineering job lappy had was uh working on the sunbeam talbot with uh what what then turned into persia uk i'm not sure what talbot uk or whoever they were chrysler whatever they were in those days um again engineer on the t16 that uh uh michael sundstrom ran in the british and rally championship been as well a long time too. um mm-hmm. yeah. bmw m3s yeah. you know really uh, somebody who has a, a huge breadth and depth of, of knowledge Definitely. and the other the other one is um a guy called christian L'Oreal who was a, a junior engineer at prodrive when we started he was actually our Event engineer for the British Championship.
0: Isn't he on the Bentley team now?
1: Yeah, he he then he his first the first car that he was given uh, autonomy with at Prodrive was the, the two thousand Impreza, which was arg- arguably um, you know certainly was Richard's favorite car, and the first time we ever drove that car, um, Richard was dumbfounded. Richard was very good at testing. But he was dumbfounded because he couldn't work out why the car was so fast and it was the first of kind of the flat bottom rally cars yeah. christian then went on to design the focus for for malcolm wilson yeah, yeah. the 03 focus
2: which he's, again he's still
1: m sport still involved in the rally program and now also In the Bentley program.
2: That 2000 Subaru wasn't that the one Robert where you and Richard lost the lead twice was it in Portugal and and yet got it back just through the sheer speed of it really.
1: Yeah and it was amazing I mean when we when we did the first test we had the the previous year's car that we um, set a time on the road got into the new car and Christian said to us just do one run I want I want to hear what you think so we went up to the top of the hill or up to the top of the road Uh, And the first thing Richard always said in the test was what was time? So I told him what the time was. And he turned to me, he said, you're not often wrong, but I think you were wrong there. I said, maybe, I don't know. I am human. So we turned around, went back down again. I gave him the time again. He's like, no, you weren't wrong. And he handbraked around. I said, Christian said one run. He said, no, but I don't know. I can't explain why it's good. So I need to go back up the road again. And as we're, taking off on the line, Christian's on the radio, come back, come back, one run, one run. So we went up to the top of the road and we must have sat there for 20 minutes, just trying to work out exactly where the car was good. And Christian's on the radio, what's wrong? What? Just calm down. Don't worry, we'll be back soon. And when Richard was ready, we went back, went back to the truck, and then he could give a full debrief on what was going on, which is kind of, you know, it was kind of Richard's style. He, he had to understand it himself.
0: Interesting. It's fascinating, isn't it? I like all that stuff. Good. Well, we're nearly out of time. So um, if anybody'd like to just get a couple more names on the board. Now's your...
3: Sandro Munari. First, first, first driving world, driver's world champion. I mean, the driver's world championship was introduced far too late. But uh, I just... It, it's a schoolboy thing, the association looking at pictures of stratuses. I think,
2: and a, and a driver who, as well, of course, being as being very successful in rallying, won the Targa Floria as well. Now, yes. there's a proper yes. race. Yes,
0: Robert, do you want to?
2: Yeah, the, I've got one more name, which is Walter Rowe Ah, oh,
0: yeah.
2: of course. Again, how could we forget?
1: Just somebody who, uh, I, a few people have said that 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 Richard was almost a a next incarnation of of Walter Rowe just in terms of very precise and tall, and what difference that makes but um you know just the the whole approach smooth to yeah to to um you know what he did i think was was great
0: okay good would would valdegard be in this in this echelon of people or not
2: yeah, absolutely. I'm asking the question. I, I <coughs> absolutely, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think he still has the record if we're talking stats, being the, the oldest person to win a WRC round. It was a, a safari when he yes, was. in his
0: forties. His
2: forties, or was he even late fifty? 40. I don't recall. But maybe maybe yes. it was maybe it was late forties, yeah. but someone again who was incredibly sort of consistent from okay. the start to the finish of his career. I think and,
0: uh, we're, meant, we're meant to come up with 12 names because that's the number that people will be, that all our, all our readers and listeners and all of you out there, you'll be voting on. So if we, if we go this way around the table, I think we should keep Loeb. Alain. Teuvenen. Science. Okay, Burns, definitely.
1: I was going to go for that. Can I vote for myself? Um, I'll tell you
0: what, here, here's, a, tell you what here's, here's a compromise. Here's a compromise. I'll go for Reid, he goes for Burns. Okay, got it? Perfect. Okay. Henry Mikola.
2: Kankanen. And by the way, I've looked it up and it does mean Hangover. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, hango- Mr. Hangovers in. Um, oh, this is this is. Ta, 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 ta. Well, David Lapworth, Andrew Cohen. Are you counting, Ed Foster? Two more. Two more. Let's give one to Robert then.
1: Uh, I need to have a think.
0: Okay, you have a think, Simon. Uh, I was going to say Jean Luc Terrier. Okay.
1: I'm going to go for Seppo Hariani. Stick up for the co-drivers.
0: Good. That's it, guys. Let's get... Wow. Okay, so here's your, here's your, here's your list, everybody. Um, it, obviously, you'll be able to find this on the Motorsport Magazine website. That's motorsportmagazine.com. But there's uh, Burns, Allen, Reed, Toivonen, Loeb, Sainz, Mikola, Cowan, Terrier, Haryani, Kankanen, and Lapworth. Those are the 12 names that we're putting up for voting in the Motorsport Magazine Hall of Fame rally section. Well done, everybody. Happy voting, and uh, we'll be very interested to see who you vote for. I must say, the number of votes that have been coming in for the other categories are fantastic. Very encouraging. One more question for Robert Reed, yeah. only because I like the question. <laughs> it comes from Gareth Holt. And Gareth wants to know, Robert, I think there might be a one-word answer to this question, actually. Were there moments when you were on a stage with Richard Burns where he did something that made you think, wow, how does he do that?
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there were. um, Both positively and negatively, I think. (laughs) Probably, but... um, yeah, I, I most of the time I had my head down, to be honest, but occasionally you either caught something out of contact, out of context, in which case you went, wow, I don't know how he did that. Or you saw something that was just, you know, pure, pure magic.
0: When you can I ask you one quickly is you've got your head down looking at the notes. This may seem a totally daft question, but how do you always know where you are if you're looking down all the time? Is that a completely daft question?
1: No, no, not at all. I mean, I think there are, there are two types of co driver if you were to categorise them, two groups. Those that look down and glance up when they need to get a reference point and those that look up and glance down when they need to read the next page note. I was always somebody who preferred to look down and glance up. And in fact... I'm probably probably to blame for the co-drivers now sitting so low in the cars, because that's what I wanted to do—just get as low as possible. And obviously, centre of gravity—it uh, it's it is better as well. Um, so if
0: you're looking down all the time with the odd glance up, you're you're feeling the distance and you're feeling the corners. So yeah,
1: it's it's it's. I don't know. It's probably the strange way my brain is wired, but. It is seat, seat of the pants so I mean you are feeling it but you're also reading something that's maybe two corners in, in advance yeah. so you kind of, you know where you are and therefore you know what you've got to read so the driver knows where he is Two so, kilometres in advance No, two corners in advance Sorry. So Sorry. yeah, so it's um, <laughs> I
0: thought you said two kilometres So yeah. it's,
1: uh, it, yeah, it's kind of a I don't know, four or five dimensional computational puzzle yeah. I yeah. think and yeah. I think just a, a final point. I once said to Richard, uh, "Can you help me and just tell me exactly when you want me to read the next corner? Is it one call ahead, two mm-hmm. calls ahead? Mm-hmm. You know what is it?" And he very helpfully said to me, "A split, a split second before I wonder what it is."
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: challenge. So that that was my challenge to to know when a split second before. Yeah. Richard, wonder when something was. Yeah.
0: Well, it's a great subject. You could talk a lot more about it, or I could. Anyway, I think it's fascinating. Okay, that is all we have time for for this um, Motorsport Magazine podcast. As I said at the top of the show, our thanks must go to Sertina Watches for their help uh, with this one. It's fantastic. Thank you very much, Certina. And don't forget, you can get your tickets for Wales Rally GB at uh, walesrallygb.com. Fairly straightforward, I'd say. It starts on November the 12th, finishes on the 15th. Uh, some of us will be down there, and I'll, I know a lot of you will be, so let's hope it doesn't rain all day, every day. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Robert Reed. Thank you, Anthony Peacock, Simon Aaron, and thanks to Alan for his usual technical skills in the corner. We'll see you next time. We look forward to it. Bye-bye.